Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be delving into the imminent initial easing of the UK's lockdown, how much is going to change next week, and why Boris Johnson is moving rather slowly. We'll be looking at the government finally hitting that 100,000 tests a day for coronavirus, but why it's struggling to hit that target since last week. We'll be looking at Rishi Sunak's concerns about the huge cost of the economic bailouts and concerns about the furloughing scheme and how it's going to be wound down. Plus, the FT's first interview with the new Labour leader, Keir Starmer, on what he hopes to achieve in opposing Boris Johnson and making the Labour Party electable again. I'm delighted to be joined remotely by our political editor, George Parker, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Political Correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all very much for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe to receive it every Saturday morning. We're also conducting a little survey to see what you do and don't like about the podcast. Enter and you'll have the opportunity to win a lovely pair of Bose noise cancelling headphones. So send us your thoughts, good and bad, to ft.com forward slash politics survey. This week in Westminster, all the chat has been once again about easing the lockdown. The UK continues to have stringent social distancing measures, which means you can't leave the house except for one bit of exercise a day, essential shopping or work that can't be done from home. All that is about to change next week. Boris Johnson will deliver a address to the nation on Sunday, where he will finally set up that exit strategy about how to get the economy going again and ease up the strict measures on day-to-day life. But everybody around the Prime Minister said the initial changes are going to be very minor, raising questions again about how much of this is all going to cost. So George Parker, just give us a bit of background on what we're expecting Boris Johnson to talk about next Sunday. And we've also been told this week the initial tweaks to the lockdown will begin on Monday. But there's going to be tweaks in some areas, but also more restriction in others. As you say, it's going to be a very modest lifting of restrictions at this stage. I think really we're looking towards the end of May before we see more significant moves on this front. That's partly because the death figures are still very high. We're not out of the woods. And Boris Johnson is worried about sending out the wrong signal at this stage. So I think we're going to see a very modest lifting of some of the restrictions on what you can do outside in particular. Boris Johnson talked about making things a little bit more comfortable in the lockdown. So on a fairly banal note, but probably important for people's day-to-day lives. It will mean you can go out and do a bit more exercise. You might be able to go sit in the park and do a bit of sunbathing. You may be able to go and have a picnic with your family, maybe go further afield. So just to sort of coax people, I suppose, back out of their houses. And I think one of the important things about this weekend will be the ditching of the stay-at-home message. And this is about the government trying to reset the nation's psychology, if you like, sort of getting us out of this defensive crouch where we're all bottled up in our own homes just starting to think about going back outside and, of course, going back into the workplace and gradually starting to kickstart the economy. But at the moment, 
is going to be fairly small steps. And as you mentioned, will be balanced by new restrictions, one of which will be at the airports, where we're going to see much tighter controls, possibility of people being quarantined when they enter the country. And the advice we expect that people should start wearing face coverings on public transport. This is less to do with stopping the spread of the disease. And again, more about encouraging people to go out to work and feeling safe when they do so. Well, I'm sure you'll be looking forward to taking up that sunbathing opportunity, George, when it begins next week. <laughs> now, Laura Hughes, a lot of the reason that these measures are quite limited is due to the fact the government has been trying to rapidly ramp up its strategy for tracking, tracing and testing for coronavirus across the country. Matt Hancock set this out a couple of weeks ago that there's going to be this NHS app that is currently being tried on the Isle of Wight with mixed results and an army of contact tracers. The idea is that bit by bit, the government can ease some measures and look to see where it pops up. What's the latest on this app? Because there's been some reports this week, the government is not entirely happy with where it's at. Yes. So the FT was reporting earlier this week that there are health chiefs in the UK who are actually asking a team of software developers to start investigating the possibility of looking at the app that at the moment is being designed by Apple and Google Until now, the UK has gone its own way and the NHS is setting up their own app. But clearly there are some fears that maybe the NHS wasn't the best organisational body to start developing this very unique contract tracing app. And that really we maybe should be trying to emulate the, the global standard here by adopting one that is used a lot more internationally. There are other countries, I think, in Europe as well, including France, who turned down the offer of having assistance from these big companies, Apple and Google, in order to go their own way. There are also concerns, of course, about privacy from these apps and how effective they can be if they don't incorporate the software that's already up and running and has been built by Apple and Google. So there are concerns about personal information, how it's going to be used, how many people are going to actually start using the apps. We know that there are lots of people in this country who don't have smartphones who won't be downloading the app. But clearly, this is still a huge part of the government's strategy to ease the lockdown without this app, without ramping up testing. It's very hard to see how we're going to see serious measures relaxed over the next few weeks. And George, this sort of explains why Boris Johnson is moving so slowly on this, because until that regime is there, you can't really get the economy moving again. And one of the things we've picked up this week, that in that televised address on Sunday, the Prime Minister is going to be trying to restate some of that initial advice about the lockdown, because as we've reported consistently, the government felt that it was too successful in some respects, that too many businesses shut up shop. And we know that the government's had calls with Pret and McDonald's and Costa Coffee and said, Why are you guys closed? You still should be open doing a takeaway service because at the moment there is this concern that the economy is moving so slowly, there's so little activity, the costs of keeping it going are just really unsustainable for the Treasury. Yeah, that's right. And the polling backs this up that Britain looks like it's one of the most scared countries in the world in terms of wanting to go back out to work. And ministers have been resorting to issuing new guidance over and over again during the course of the lockdown just to try and coax companies into reopening. So to take the example you mentioned there of Samonje or Costa Coffee or McDonald's or, or whatever, first of all, they had to issue to say, look, you don't actually have to phone ahead to collect a coffee from Costa Coffee. Which they've also issued advice to allow drive-through collections. But basically, there's a problem here, which is that for lots of these businesses, it's just not economical to open up. 
partly because the demand if you're a coffee shop's not there because lots of people aren't going into work in their offices, but also the question of whether you can persuade your staff to come in and they're still a bit scared. So it has been frustrating for ministers. And I think, as you say, what we're going to get at the weekend from Boris Johnson is not wholesale lifting of restrictions, but just trying to reset the message, to try to encourage people back into the workplace. And although, as I said, it's, it seems fairly anodyne, the idea of allowing people to go out and take more exercise and go out and sit in parks, it's just part of that psychological thing of just persuading people it's safe to go back out there. And Jim Picard, one thing that will come next week, we think, are these sectoral guides, the idea that companies are preparing these guides for businesses to see how you can get about business, ramp up activity safely given social distancing and also guidance for those other businesses that aren't able to open now will be able to in the future. Because again, this big concern for the Department of Business that they do need to get things moving again, even if it's not going to happen this Monday, three weeks time at the end of May, once the app is ready, once the contact tracing is ready, then it'll be time for businesses to get going. So we imagine part of the message Mr Johnson is going to be get ready to go back to work while staying safe. Just to take that point there's a huge caveat that I think I need to make before I get into the fine detail of the government's advice and that is in the draft that we've seen it says very clearly about office workers if you can work from home continue working from home. So an awful lot of people despite everything you guys were saying about the government wanting people to come back to normal there will be a very clear message to office workers to stay put in their bedrooms or studies or wherever they are. And this is because the government is very worried about these workers flooding back into major cities and overwhelming public transport. If you think about how hard it is to socially distance on the tube or on London buses, there was that figure that came out a few days ago where they think that more than even 15% of usual capacity and then you'll have people coming too close to each other. So there will be still some very careful messaging on this. But Where you work in other sectors, the message will be to come back with all sorts of new restrictions in place. And as Seb, you said, there are seven different working groups, not quite by sector, but actually by kind of work. So one of them was call centres and offices, one was manufacturing, one was people driving, one of them was people working outside, one of them was people going into other people's homes to work. So if you're like a plumber or a gas fitter or something... And there's some quite interesting advice in lifts, people having to stay apart. We're going to have tape all over the floor, making sure that people stay away from each other. We'll be advised not to swap pens with your colleagues, all that kind of advice. But the one thing still missing from these documents, which we're hoping will be filled in before Boris Johnson speaks on Sunday, is protective personal equipment, because there's nothing in these drafts mentioning PPE at all. And companies are worried, firstly, If they don't give their staff sufficient PPE, are they going to be in danger of their lives? But secondly, if they do start buying up huge amounts of PPE, are they going to end up reducing the availability of PPE for frontline health staff? And that is a concern on both sides. And of course, surrounding this whole debate, George, are the growing concerns from the Treasury that when the economic shutdown began almost six weeks ago, Rishi Sunak announced these three unprecedented packages with some other smaller ones as well to help businesses, to help the employed and to help the self-employed. And really, there was in the situation of there is no other alternative, the Treasury had to step in to prop up most of the British economy to make sure people weren't falling into bankruptcy and debt due out this crisis. 
But this week, we've got some signs that Rishi Sunak is starting to get a bit concerned about how much this is all costing and how long it's going to have to go on for. Most of those initial schemes were for about three months. But in fact, there is a chance they could go on much longer and with that, a much higher cost. Yes, I mean, the two schemes in particular which are running for three months are the ones covering so-called job retention scheme, the furlough scheme that we all know about, where the state's picking up 80% of people's wages up to £2,500, and a similar scheme aimed at the self-employed. Now, they both are scheduled to end at the end of June. And one of the biggest policy challenges the government's facing at the moment is how you start to unwind those schemes, how you start to wean people off them. And the whole Treasury now is consumed with a debate about how and when you start to do that, whether you start to do it by sectors or whether you start to do it by tapering off the 80% to 60%, then 40%, or whether you design the scheme as the Labour Party and some unions are suggesting, where you allow people to claim the furlough while working part-time as well. So there are a whole range of measures the government's considering, but they do need to do it because their concern is, A, this is vastly expensive, costing much as it costs the taxpayer to fund the NHS. But also they're worried about distortions in the labour market where you could end up supporting effectively zombie jobs to jobs which are never going to come back. You're still paying people under the fiction that maybe one day they'll be able to go back to work for their companies. And that's deterring people from going off to find jobs in other parts of the economy which are open. So it's a huge political and policy challenge. Yes, Jim, because you've, again, have been right about this this week, about the challenge of how to unwind this. And there's been reports that Mr Sunak is looking at tapering the easing to ease people off this drug of free money from the Treasury and back into work and back into sustainable businesses. But the fact is, there's going to be some incredibly difficult decisions for the government here, because as George said, there are these zombie jobs that will not exist after the economy corrects itself. You know, we've seen this week the airline industry is in real issues with Virgin Atlantic sacking thousands of people and closing its operations at Gatwick Airport and BAs and issues too. So however Mr Sunat makes these calls, it's going to be very political by its nature, how and where they wean people off this. And of course, that will present an opportunity for the opposition as well. George is absolutely spot on to say that this is a huge policy dilemma for the Treasury. And I can't think of anything aside from Brexit, and maybe this is bigger where the stakes are so high and the potential downsides, both economically and politically, if they go down the route of withdrawing this from some sectors, but keeping it for others, can you imagine the fury among those sectors which lose out? So perhaps this is just making it up. They give assistance to the ferries, but they don't give assistance to the railways, or they help restaurants, but they don't help nightclubs. You're going to see people in the industries losing out, being absolutely furious. I think Norman Lamont, the former chancellor, made a very good point in someone else's podcast this week when he said that there's still that sort of sense of unreality where most people haven't realised that this is coming down the tracks. They feel like their salary is still coming in, protected by the state, and they don't really know that there is this wave of potential mass redundancies. And the Treasury doesn't use the phrase mass redundancies, but I promise you in private, that is a phrase that they are using. And when you think about the politics of this, there was an Edelman study this week suggesting that support for the government is really high. The increase in support is higher than any other country. But when you delve into those figures, the support for the government on things like medical testing is not very high. They don't think the government's doing a brilliant job in terms of dealing with the virus in in medical terms. What they have been impressed by 
is the Treasury's response and the way that Rishi Sunak has come up with these schemes at short notice to save jobs. So when that is withdrawn and we could see unemployment rising very sharply, you could see the political winds suddenly turning very, very rapidly against the Conservative government. And as you say, Seb, that is obviously to the benefit potentially of Labour in political terms. I think there's plenty of Conservative MPs who are aware of this too that I've spoken to this week, that setting up the economic schemes was very easy and the right thing to do, but unwinding them is going to be very, very tough. And of course, that happens at the summer before we hit the autumn when Mr Sunak has to deliver another budget and deal with the consequences of this on the public finances. Now to testing, and the government seemed to have a slightly better week of it when it finally hit the 100,000 tests a day by the end of April. This was a target set by Matt Hancock, slightly arbitrary target. And the idea was to show the UK had the capacity to test everyone who needed to and put it on a footing with Germany, which has been much far ahead of the UK. The government just hit that test with 108,000 tests. But ever since then, it's fallen back. Laura, can you just explain how the government actually managed to hit that threshold and why it struggled to get back to over 100,000 since then? On the surface of it, last Friday, it looked like a really triumphant moment for Matt Hancock, health secretary, he'd actually surpassed his target. But as the press conference went on, and we started getting the figures from the government, it became pretty clear that they'd actually managed to do this because they'd started chucking out these home testing kits. And what they were doing is they counted a test that was put in the post as a test carried out, which is, of course, a very different thing. And so actually, What the government did is, yes, they did dramatically increase their capacity. And I don't think anybody can take any issue with that. But there were questions over how many of those tests had actually been carried out. And could you really include them in the numbers? And since they went over the 100,000 mark, we've seen the numbers dramatically falling. Why? Well, ministers are saying and officials are pointing to issues with some of the labs that we've been using. These are labs that were just set up really recently to try and help increase capacity. And of course, they're still complaining as they have done in the past that there isn't always demand there. But the reason that there might not be demand there is that sometimes for some NHS workers who might be applying to do these tests, they have to drive quite considerable distances if the home testing kits have run out. And that's not possible for everybody to do all the time. So often people are booking the tests and then they're not actually taking them officials are still really insistent that the main point that everybody should be looking at is the fact that the capacity is there. And that's why Boris Johnson on Wednesday announced there was a new target of delivering and carrying out 200,000 tests a day. Because as we talked about earlier, this is vital. If you start rolling out the app, you get people on that because we can then test, trace and isolate. So if lockdown measures are eased and then we can see actually in Manchester, a spike. We're going to have to do lots of tests in Manchester. Lockdown restrictions could be toughened up again. That's how the government is going to be able to manage this. So capacity is really important. But if you looked at this cynically, it does look like they've just put everything into hitting the target last Friday so that political pundits like us couldn't criticise them. It's continued to fall. Yesterday, it fell again. The PM came out and gave another big chunky figure to make headlines and some are saying that it's all just a bit meaningless and actually it really does need to be part of a much wider more comprehensive test and trace strategy and they need to explain to the public why they're increasing it clearly a lot of work is going on at the moment to make sure that 
it's not just capacity. You are actually testing more than I think it was 70,000 on Wednesday, which is well short of the 100,000. So still problems with testing, still issues, it seems, with labs, chemical reagents, shortages. It's the ongoing issue that they are grappling with every single day. Well, let's continue being cynical for a moment, George, and just look at the politics of why the government hit this sort of artificial target. As Laura was saying, there were some quite bizarre things they did to even get there, like emailing the Tory party membership just to get as many of those home testing kits out the door. Because yes, as we know from the Johnson government, they like their slogans and they like nice, easy PR wins, which they certainly got in this case. But the fact the infrastructure is not there means that it doesn't stand up to much scrutiny and isn't going to help when we get to that point of getting the economy going. Because Boris Johnson said this week that we are going to hit 200,000 tests a day by the end of May. Yeah, you can see Matt Hancock looking slightly dispirited when Boris Johnson made that announcement in the Commons this week. Look, I'm a bit less critical of Matt Hancock on this than I think some other people are. Certainly, Britain was very, very slow to build up its testing capacity. 1,500 tests available at the beginning of March, 10,000 at the end of March. And to go from 10,000 to 100,000 testing capacity in a month is no mean feat. There's a lot of criticism you can make of the government's strategy until that point, not using the private sector enough. But I think the only way, this is one of the lessons that the government's learned from this, that you can actually get the health system to respond, is to set very big and scary targets and bend the machine to your will. And of course, as Laura was saying, they use a little jiggery pokery and slightly strange things to actually get to the target on the 30th of April and it's fallen back. But nevertheless, I think the whole target setting exercise did help the government to build up the testing capacity in a way it hadn't done before. And in particular, forced the NHS and Public Health England in particular to loosen its grip on the whole testing apparatus and to reach out to the private sector and to build up a proper diagnostic capability. So, yes, Matt Hancock can be criticised for massaging the figures, to put it politely. I think the exercise was probably worthwhile. Well, one person who has been critical of the government over testing, over PPE and over all aspects of the coronavirus is Keir Starmer, who's the new leader of the Labour Party. He sat down with Jim for his first comprehensive interview with the FT and talked about all manner of ways he's going to change the party, how he's going to hold the government to account and how he intends to get Labour back into power for the first time in almost 14 years by the time the next general election comes. Jim, in your interview with Keir, what did you make of his approach towards governing? Because obviously it's clear he's a very different leader of the opposition to Jeremy Corbyn. And I thought one of the lines that struck me as well is that he's almost devoid of a kind of egotistical political sense that a lot of leaders are. And in fact, he's very pragmatic, wants to govern in the centre ground of the Labour Party and trying to move away from those Corbynite, the Labour left, the Labour right divisions that have dogged the party for so long. It's interesting you say that, said because talking to his friends, some say that he is a man with actually surprisingly little ego and he doesn't actually really like talking about himself. And he said to other interviews in the past that he finds the focus on you know, where he grew up and what his parents did and things like that just a bit peculiar. He's quite a private guy. I should also add for our listeners that I didn't sit down with him other than in the sense that I sat down somewhere 20 miles away and he sat down in his house. We chatted over the phone because everything done by the leader of the opposition right now, pretty much is being done by Zoom. All the shadow cabinet meets by Zoom. He holds meetings with the PLP by Zoom. He comes in once or twice a week to sort of do parliamentary business. And of course, we saw him at PMQs this week. 
he obviously won by reaching out to not only relatively right-wing members, but also by trying to reach out to some disillusioned Corbynistas. So he is a socialist. He would run a fairly left-wing government in the usual sense. But the speed with which he's distancing himself from the Corbyn era is quite interesting. He's got rid of a dozen Corbynista members of the shadow cabinet. We saw the departure of Jenny Formby, the general secretary who was close to Jeremy Corbyn this week. And in his interview with me, I asked him, you are often blamed by people for Labour's defeat in December because it was Keir Starmer who pushed the party into this position of backing a second referendum on EU membership. And out of the 59 seats they lost, more than 50 of them were in leave areas. And he tried to deflect from that by saying he thought there were four reasons why the party went down badly on the doorsteps. And the first was the leadership, he says, you know, fair or not fair. He also blamed the anti-Semitism crisis. He also blamed an overly burdensome manifesto. And somewhere in probably fourth place, he, he admitted that Brexit had been an issue in some places. But he also said, if Brexit was the main reason why Labour lost, why have they lost four elections in a row? And when it comes to policy, he's quite cagey. He doesn't want to sort of set out and stall straight away, bearing in mind that the, the next election is still four or five years away. He almost seems relieved, if that's the right word, that he no longer has to talk all the time about is he five steps to the right of Corbyn or 20 steps or which precise elements of the last two manifestos he would keep and which he would ditch because the conversation has moved on so rapidly into this new world of coronavirus and the post-COVID-19 landscape where we're going to have these huge, huge bills to pay and rising unemployment and everything else. Politically, it allows him something of a clean slate where he won't be quite as shackled to his predecessor as we might have thought a few months ago. Because, George, one of the things that is throughout Jim's piece is this idea of competence, because, you know, we've criticised and analysed all the ups and downs of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And there was this overwhelming sense that throughout his time leading the party, he just wasn't very good at it. He wasn't effective at prime minister's questions. He wasn't effective at holding the government to account in parliament. The one thing he was very good at, of course, was grassroots politics at rallies, at getting people together, creating this huge mass movement within the Labour Party. But in the lead of the opposition terms, he wasn't very good. And I think one thing you see from all the quotes in Jim's piece, people saying that this is what Keir is good at. He's very effective. And he has moved very quickly to annex some of the key parts of the Corbyn control over Labour. And no doubt there's more to come in the future. But already, as I think you could see from the BBC broadcaster, Angie Neal, it feels like the UK has a proper opposition again. And that is going to get more and more problematic for Boris Johnson. Yes, I think it is. I think Keir Starmer has been a bit more ruthless than many people expected in starting to purge the Corbynites from senior positions in the party. And everything that Keir Starmer does, it seems to me, is designed to put distance between himself and that four or five year Corbynite experiment where Jeremy Corbyn, as you were just alluding to there, spent a lot of time preaching to the converted, but signally failing out to reach the floating middle ground voters that Labour have got to win over to win the next election. And you know, Keir Starmer, when you see him in action, asking forensic questions, commanding a brief, putting Boris Johnson on the spot, he looks like a capable leader. And frankly, at this stage in the parliament, that's what people want. They just want to be able to think that there is someone waiting in the wings who could provide an alternative government. And the very fact that Keir Starmer is doing that does put Boris Johnson under a bit more pressure, including his handling of coronavirus. We'll see that play out, I think, over the, the coming months. 
And finally, very briefly, Jim, from all your reporting and speaking to Keir himself, what was the one thing that surprised you about him that you didn't know before? I'm not sure this really helps our political understanding of Keir Starmer, but it was a news to me that he was a massive musical prodigy as a youngster. He played the flute, violin, recorder, piano, played for the London Philharmonic, had some kind of scholarship to the Guildhall, which is something I hadn't known before. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Jim and Laura for joining. In the meantime, if you'd like what you've heard and I see some more FT journalism, and you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep well. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.